Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have as my guest, Jonathan Jewell. Jonathan is an academic and a practitioner who focuses on knowledge transfer and the study of value. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Marcus. It's my pleasure. This is long overdue. We've been uh, chatting for some time, so I'm delighted to have you. Jonathan, would you mind giving us a 60-second non-technical introduction to your work, please, and your background? I started out over in um, healthcare practice, where I was um, a children's nurse. I became very, very interested in the notion of what is important to people, which is the study of um, value, the idea about which is uh, technically called axiology. I then became very, very concerned, particularly in how theory informs practice and how practice informs theory. That is, we have great ideas in theory. Do they ever make it into the real world? We have great insights from practice. Can we get those insights back to theory so it's looking at the right thing? So when I say academic, I often acknowledge the idea that the word phrase, it's academic, means it's not really relevant. And I think that's one of the areas I see is very important. I've been through a number of different stages in this development, been exploring things as we've kind of um, gone along through. So we've taken on uh, subjects to do with things like decision science, measurement science, work with organizations, ergonomics and human factors, and worked in a range of different industries because the focus is on that interface between theory and practice and the notion of what is important, what is valuable. So, Jonathan, help me understand something. What is value and how does one identify the value you offer and the value you might receive? So, as I was saying before, the, the idea behind value is used quite a lot in different ways when we talk about people's values, as in what's important to them, or when we evaluate something, and that is we determine how good or not something is. Or when we talk about like much more abstract values, things like, for example, whether we value loyalty or whether we value fairness, these kinds of um, different things. But the idea behind axiology, if you were to look at that subject, it's, it's basically a breakdown. It's sort of like coming together, sorry, of two different areas of philosophy. One side of that is the notion of ethics. So what is good in terms of what is right? You know, this idea that truth is right, that things are like fairness are right. Goodness is, has a moral kind of dimension to it. The other side of it is this notion of aesthetics. And a lot of people, when they think that aesthetics is kind of used as a sort of like upgrade often for the word art. But aesthetics is actually the opposite of the word anesthetic. And anesthetic means no experience, which is when you're under the anesthetic. That's a state of experience where, as I say, there is no consciousness, no phenomena in the world. So the idea behind aesthetics, the opposite of saying in this way, and as I say, it's often thought of as being beauty, is actually it's about phenomena and the experience of being, of experiencing the world, seeing what is beautiful, moving away from what is not beautiful, and seeking this kind of like life of what I think it was Aristotle calls eudaimonia. The good life is yes. a, a transaction. So that eudaimonia notion is actually quite complex. That's a very big simplification. But the idea between, as I say, the idea, the fundamental idea in axiology is that we've got these two areas coming together. Now, obviously, philosophy is divided into different sections. That is kind of, in some ways, artificial. We're obviously concerned about things like knowledge, what's good knowledge, bad knowledge, what is 
things like, for example, what is a good thing or what is not a good thing. But principally, the idea within the way of thinking about it is always looking at those two parts. It's the moral goodness or the rightness or, you know, what is the best in terms of you probably hear about things like treat others the way you want to be treated or the greatest good for the greatest many. There's that kind of moral side. Be a virtuous person, most kind of like theory areas. And then there's this other area, which is about the characterization of what our phenomenal, our phenomenological experiences and how we seek out good things in life, things that will be experiences, internal, external, which are important to us, the values that we hold. So that's a kind of fundamental thing. And when you sort of like start breaking it down, you get sort of like notions which you see calculations, like when you're doing value management, uh, when you're doing best value and we're talking about these terms, when you're thinking about these kind of things, and I think we, we've talked in the past about how much money do you make? How do you make it most efficiently, most effectively, most you know, economically in a way that's equitable and so on and so forth? This is kind of an interface between the area principally of economics and the stuff to do with axiology. So if you were to take economics, you've got this idea that the world has scarce resource and we have to make a decision between one thing and another because wants and needs are considered to be infinite, but supply is always considered to be finite. When I decide to do this podcast, I surrender time that I could be teaching, making money. I make a sacrifice against any time with my family and so on and so forth. And so there's lots of ways in which this is looked at as being as I say, uh, the area where we're really making the decision itself, and I mentioned I'd studied decision sciences, this is often the area that decision sciences looks at, it's called behavioural economics. When I'm a human being, I'm making these decisions, which way do I go and what am I giving up in order to do that? And if you think about that, that depends on my values and how I evaluate what's going on. I think it also depends on how one prioritises, because the way you describe it, having done a little bit of uh, research into Stoicism, then Stoics tend to be very pragmatic and uh, looking to do the right thing. But then they have their slightly more miserable side, uh, which is that you want to avoid too much uh, pleasure of the flesh. So I, I think what's interesting is the balance of trying to find the outcome that will deliver the result that you're looking for without compromising your values, your ethics, and without causing harm. And I think far too often in the modern economy, that latter bit has been sacrificed. I look at the way sales and business operates nowadays, and I look on with a certain amount of disgust that human beings have been demoted to little better than a utility. And the cost for the many or for the environment or for culture has been very heavy so that a few can gain materially. Now, I'm a through and through capitalist, but I think I believe in a benevolent form of capitalism rather than one that's purely rapacious. And I'm curious how, through your studies, you've observed what's going on in the global economy and in business day to day, and the conclusions uh, that you're reaching in terms of its sustainability and the likely reaction 
I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we have seen sort of um, changes in the way that people have thought about these things over different points in time. And obviously the current state of things, I mean, you mentioned even within that, I am a capitalist. That has a whole range of laden views. It's something that I evaluate, I listen to it, and I think to myself instantaneously, do I think that's good? Do I think that's bad? Same time you say things like sales, I think, oh, that means something. And it has certain things which describe me. I think your point about sustainability is a very good example, where sustainability is often sort of like viewed as what is our situation right now? And should we, in terms of our infinite wants and needs, as economics refers to it, our, our infinite demand for things, should we go about trying to plunder everything to be satisfying things now? Or should we be thinking about a more measured way in, in terms of the future, how we're going to leave stuff for future generations or allow things to regenerate and keep working in order that there's something there for us? And I think there are a number of things which I... Um, would say about things to do with value that are really changing at the moment. And I remember I was in a session of talk, which was about how things changed since 2000. And the person who was running that talk went around the room to ask everybody was, and all of the things were really, really pretty much unequivocally negative things. And when they came over to me, I said, and she was writing these down on the board, I said, well, actually, I think in the past 20 years, for all the criticism, for all the problems people have started, in a sense, because of the problems, they've started to start asking questions like, well, what is happiness about? Where can I find happiness? Is happiness beyond the job? Uh, a very interesting phenomenon is that in economics, a general phenomenon, is that when you get, according to economic theory, under capitalism, under basic sort of um, arrangements, you would expect that if I can make more money, and get more out of doing this. I will infinitely keep trying to go and make more and more and more. Again, this is a simplification, but what you end up with having is this strange question, which is a paradox. And it says, well, when people reach a certain amount of money, they suddenly decide that they want to use more of their time for leisure. They just will not continue to go and seek the same value that they were previously doing because they start to realize now I'm making enough to be able to satisfy other needs and other values and importance. My point within it was very much people are recognizing that there is a value beyond themselves. A bit like after the war, you saw a big shift, the Second World War, you saw a big shift from the kind of what is the best way we can use the humans for the most efficient action? How, what's the best angle for them to dig at to get the maximum value? What's the, you know, it was very, very much looking at work and, and how people would be assembled in the same kind of let's reduce people that Adam Smith's work was doing to the pin makers and this specialization. And after the war, there was a different value set. People started thinking about things, for example, Sesame Street and the Open University, which was about public education, things like you would take the NHS, the United Nations. These kind of things were happening in, in response over there. And you saw a shift in business toward a school of human relations thinking. And that human relations theory has given way to something which recognises a lot more complexity, systems thinking. Um, I think one of the biggest things I recognise is changing at the moment is there's a hierarchy that we often talk about that says, first of all, we've got this data level, then we move on to information. And so the data is sort of like just the numbers, the, the things which are there, the kind of points in space. You then move on to information where that is being put together and put in context. You then move to knowledge where the person integrates their experience of that and forms a kind of knowing of how the system works and how it interacts. 
And there's often talked about this next level, which is called wisdom. And if you think about wisdom in terms of, let's say, someone like Warren Buffett, everybody can get the knowledge, but certain people are wise. Warren Buffett can make sense of that. He can make judgment, or he's had been making judgments. Certain people have this wisdom we often talk about. What I think is we're seeing this massive increase in terms of technology. We're seeing this ability to manipulate information. And we, previously, we didn't have the data. Then we had the data, but we couldn't make sense of it. Now that's becoming more involved with knowledge management, with the way we kind of use models to think. Once we get across, and we're seeing the development of computers, which can do incredible things. Once AI starts to take away this need to be doing some of the knowledge because it captures it in expert systems, Theoretically, what does a human do? A human isn't just sort of like entering data and plugging it together. They're not just saying, oh, how does this fit these things? They're not just saying, hey, let's look at how this comes together to be the most efficient and most pragmatic. But they move to a level where what's a human thing? Maybe it is this level of wisdom. And I think in terms of axiology, this is a very special moment because when you start to look at wisdom, essentially you are asking just the question, not asking how do I get to it or how will I move my way, maneuver, what's the most efficient pathway? You're starting to ask, what do I value? What do I want about the future? What would be a wise thing? Now, Warren Buffett, get really rich, let's say. I mean, I think he's got other values, but he is recognized for being a person who is wise and can use the stock market. And he does it in the way that under capitalism is very much the kind of focus the idea of sort of crewing wealth and, uh, and moving forward. There's a, when I mentioned this thing about happiness and us appreciating, reflecting more on our values, people saying, I want to take the holidays. And I was working at the Royal College of Surgeons as an innovation advisor. And there was a big concern because the Data Protection Act had come in and the data, sorry, not data protection, the working time regulators come in and everybody expected the surgeons to continue working 120 hours. They gave a opt-out for it. But a lot of the surgeons decide I'm not doing that. I can stick within this and I can have a life. I can spend time with my family. And it created this other problem because the government just assumed that these competitive, excited surgeons would continue that way. And now they're saying, well, hang on, how is surgery? How are you? You've got experience of people who are working three times a working week gaining that experience. Now they're only working that in 20 years. We've got 60 years experience versus 20 years experience, assuming that there aren't breaks and assuming you go on and so forth. When I mentioned my thing about this reflection on values and happiness, the person who was in charge of the session didn't write it down. And I was like, you've got like, you know, war, terrorism, you've got all these kinds of things. And I said, well, why didn't you write it down? And she goes, well, it's very much a minority report, isn't it? And I was like, I was the only person who said People are thinking about their values, about happiness. All the other things were lists of terrorism, computers, drone strikes, and all this kind of stuff. But that was the thing they wanted to talk about. Well, done. Um, I think when we get to the level of wisdom, we are now saying what are the values. And if you were to watch Star Trek, I think it's seven. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg says, "How do you make money?" To John um, Luc Picard, I forget her name, character, and he goes, "Well, we don't use money. What we're all about now in this generation." is about personal development and how we can make the most for our kind through this federated agreement and through what we're doing. There isn't a need for that because we pursue value. Now, I'm not a geek. I don't know. I, I, you know. I retrofitted, so I haven't got the exact memory of that discussion, but it's very, I think, indicative of a kind of way of thinking, which is not about how do we 
process the information, but how do we get the computers to do not just, can I work out what the market's like? How many people can I sell to? But is selling to these people the most important thing? And if so, let's direct the computers to work that way. And Industry 5.0 is about the idea that we're moving to smart tech to a situation where we have humans working with computers. And I think we need to sort out our roles and say what value goes on. I'd like to pick up on a couple of points. I mean, one of the really interesting bits of research that I've read about is the World Happiness Index, measuring a country's success on the basis of the level of happiness that its citizens enjoy. And increasingly what I'm seeing with the generations that came after mine, so Gen Y, Gen Z, and Millennial, is that there is more of a shift away from the acquisition of material wealth and to having better experience, more development. They want their, uh, and this is a wild generalization, but companies that run by those generations tend to be ones that are more orientated around the purpose. Um, And I, I have to say, not having spent a lot of time working in corporate, I've been more open to those ideas. I think my generation is largely responsible for the current disarray and state of affairs. And I think, in all honesty, my generation, because they're at the top of the greasy pole in many cases, they have no incentive to change. But what I'm seeing, and I'm, I've created a community around this whole concept, is that we should be focused on being significantly more collaborative. Our customers are at the heart of everything that we do. Uh, We need to learn how to partner with our customers if we don't already, because we need to be able to create an environment where we co-develop our products and our services with our customers in order to help them deliver successful outcomes. And our compensation needs to be to recognize our contribution to their success. So I'm really quite excited by the potential of uh, this new type of thinking. I said I was a benevolent capitalist. I have a a real issue where the flow of value is all one way. I fundamentally believe that success in the future will be determined by our ability to collaborate with other people within our own organization, with our competition, with our customers, our partners, and our suppliers, and also with the technology. If you look at the efficacy of AI on its own or human radiographers on their own, the numbers are substantially and materially uh, worse than where you have human-AI partnership. I'm seeing this uh, with a couple of the companies that I work with, one in the marketing space and another one in the sales enablement space, where the human AI partnership can literally eliminate 95 to 99% of the wasted effort. Now, when you consider that the average salesperson is spending somewhere between 79 and 88% of their time a non-customer-facing activity, that is an immense waste, almost without exception. I've never been into a company where I couldn't find at least 400% growth potential 
just by stopping them doing stupid things and acts of self-sabotage. So I think what's going to be really interesting is how we start asking better questions. And I think that's one area that's been sadly lacking because people have been so much nose to the grindstone that they don't reflect enough. And I think this is really where academia can come in because I think you know, it's the academic's job to ask those questions. And I think we really need to look at more of a partnership between academics and commerce. And you know, where you see that going on, you look at um, yes, the Silicon Fens in Cambridge and you look at these growth accelerators which are partnered with universities. Some phenomenal ideas come from there. But yeah. I, I think there's a lack of reflection and lack of asking difficult, simple, difficult questions. Your thoughts? I disagree. Well, I don't disagree entirely, but I think there are certain, there's quite a lot of initiative and activity going on about this at the moment. There's an organisation called Praxis Oral. There were there are a number of different areas looking more at knowledge translation, uh, knowledge uh, utilisation and transfer, how it moves around and how we can communicate it. A lot of stuff in the design world discussing this co-development. And I think, I guess the areas that I'm going to disagree on are these three um, areas. One is that the academics should be doing the thinking and that separately the practitioners are always right to nose to the grindstone. Because I think there is an extent to which academics, there's an expression within nursing and it's very much about, it's to do with pain. I think it goes something like pain is what the patient says it is, when the patient says it is, where it is. It's all very much about you are the expert yourself. And I think one of the problems with values is we can look at values as a sort of collective thing. We can try and encourage people to reflect on them. But to some extent, people's expertise, and I know there are problems in terms of a much wider kind of um, setup, like, for example, when we see in political cases, these people have a particular value set, which is detrimental to the whole. To some extent, people are the experts who are in their own value. And that's kind of necessarily the case because we go through our lives looking at those values and you know, building them up in response to our experiences. Bringing academics in might be useful in terms of critical thinking, but I think the question asking really needs to be transferred itself onto people. To an extent, that's becoming more possible, because like I was saying, if you can generate within certain groups, if you can generate that income, there is more of a facility to go out and create the space to be reflecting. There are more of these kinds of things which I'm not really convinced about. A lot of things, for instance, and I had an argument with some people the other day about this, about, um, you know, these kind of organisations, these agencies which might put on events which are to do with, you know, how to, you know, deal with your stress and to kind of, like, be more optimistic about life. Because I think a real problem has been a loss of agency. That is that people have said, there are people who tell us that the world's a big place. We come to believe that we are a dot in the universe because of Darwin and thinking that we're a tiny part. We can't make our own difference. There are a couple of quotations um, like it's only ever like you know, one person or a small group of people who change things. But we've started to say we deal with our problems by basically handing them away. We say that we have a sphere of concern and a sphere of influence. And as long as we're in the sphere of concern, we can do something, keep the locus of control. 
But when we get problems, we push that out of the sphere of concern and become more mindful about the things that we can't do. And I often see there are people who think this of other people as well. We, you know, if you set up an event with some students and you don't trust the students, you send the students out to go and do setting up chairs and putting things like cups around, you end up in a situation where that student is like, well, you know, I'm not like important in this. People don't trust me. There's been a recent thing circulating quite a lot um, about, you know, how we should treat students on placements. And I commented on this before in places. And I said, no, they, every person is coming to the workplace when they leave school with 18 years, certainly within the UK or the US, in an advanced society that, complete, that is based on the uh, cumulative uh, cultural capital, as it's called, of thousands and thousands of years versus development. And we will say they come in, but they haven't really got skills and can't really use them for anything, boys don't really want them. By having a mindset where we start pushing away everything into our sphere of influence to manage, uh, from our sphere of influence into our sphere of concern to kind of manage our feelings, we become very much more detached. And people go into places with much less, and it's not even optimistic attitudes, it's attitudes which are enforced by a system that says you don't do that, you can't do that. And therefore, the way we do it is to work within these particular you know, ways of doing rules and so on. I think there is a role for actually moving away from the thinking, which is very, I think I put up a few days ago on LinkedIn, something that corporacy, the ability, the, the idea that we can be transparent without being able to say, I came away from that meeting and there was dissent and we were concerned about these things. People did raise this issue. We talked about it and go through the process. But having this corporacy where people adopt a particular viewpoint, in a sense, put up a, a shield pretending they are a particular kind of, you know, that decision was made that we're all behind it, the PR is reinforcing it, is a real threat because it tends to position other people. It tends to make people think they've tried that and they've left it. So I'm not sure it's necessary. I think there is a need for more space, which is limited by people, by the massive problems with cost of living and all these kind of things, which some people are obviously able to get around and give more time. And you often see them giving time to things that they want to do with the money they've got, the idea of live to work or work to live. But then you have this question of that we almost take away the right to values, the, the fact that you've got values which are legitimate of interest and matters of concern. And we try and block them or create them. And I think we were saying before the idea that we would look at trying to, what will the market tolerate? What will all these people, because they're not really concerned about that individual. And even big consumer groups aren't that influential. And really we have to band together in a union if we want change and accept all the compromises. So I, I think there is a role for academia. There's a role for commerce um, to do this. And I agree with the goal. I think that's an incredibly valuable goal. I think there's a danger in thinking that the notion of what we decide to be of value is something that somebody else should really be controlling, constraining, building systems and rules in line with their own ones, and by a kind of habit or a cultural kind of norm, assume that you know this person is now, you know, as I say, that somebody fits in. I think with innovation, you see it. People love the idea that people can come in and innovate. That they might be a great thinker, and they're kind of they're like, oh, these people might have great new ideas, but actually, those great new ideas tend to be the ones which people say, oh, they're valuable ideas, valuable to me, and I, I you know, I'll take that. Or they're not valuable ideas, and they go without recognizing that things that are value are not always the same. So, 
there is this place where we need to understand our customers. And in a sense, that's really the next step along, like you were saying, by understanding our customers and understanding their values, we don't necessarily provide them with steps to the solution, but we find solutions that work towards that goal. And I don't think we always are trying to do that. In, in, in computer science, you do see it. People have requirements engineers whose job is solely to be a translation point between a client who has the requirement and the technical people who might want to do it in their particular way, but don't actually appreciate the values of that person. But we don't have a language that really communicates value in the same way. We have to wrap value up in things like it's valuable to the company because, or this is why, you know, we have to justify things in a much more structured by business documents using business terms, jargon, inline, talked about as it is a compromise that we've met. Not everyone can be happy. All these kind of things are a, a language which very much limits us. I think there's a, another really important issue here, which is that people shy away from conflict. Not all conflict is bad. Constructive yeah. conflict, in fact, I see as being incredibly valuable. But I, I see it all the time where people avoid all forms of conflict for fear of yeah. not being liked or for, you know, that things may go tits up. But the reality is that without conflict, you don't tend to evolve as uh, an individual or a business. Now, there's the opposite side of that, which I know is another area um, that you studied, the, the whole concept of exnovation. So what needs to stay the same? What do we not need to change? And again, I think that it's very dangerous to just focus on the innovation side without working yeah. out uh, really working, whilst also being ready to review what has worked in the past and challenge it to make sure it's still fit for purpose. Yeah. So I'd like to explore why it is that within cultures, in businesses or academia, wherever, um, that people tend to shy away from constructive conflict because it's a theme that's come through in many of the podcasts and it's incredibly powerful. You know, I've learned more by being told I'm wrong than I have yeah. by being told I'm right. Absolutely. I had a discussion with my son the other day. I was asking about how he was doing at school and I commented on something he'd done and he goes, you don't need to tell me the good stuff, just tell me the bad stuff. That's what's important, isn't it? That's what like. That's a very worrying, I think, thing to say. He goes, well, no, I'm not being in a bad way because I think he takes criticism very well. We do have sort of like a very, very strong dialogue. But I've seen this also in practice where I had somebody in one of my medical school classes and he goes, I spare me the shit sandwich. He goes, why, are you just, why do you have to wrap it up like this? I just want to hear the bad stuff. So I immediately said, well, we're thinking like that. Why, how the hell did you get into one of the best schools in the country for medicine? And he looked absolutely devastated. And he started trying to justify it. And everyone in the class was like, don't you see? You've just done that as an illustration. And he was like, okay, yeah, actually I do. Because he suddenly felt this absolute terrible kind of feeling. But I think we have got into situations. I think there are several reasons. One is the notion of us not communicating properly. There's the, obviously this idea that we've got, which is about um, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. These are actually some of the biggest values that people have. Absolutely. And we say don't talk about those values. Don't talk about the things that are most fundamental to you at your core that define everything. 
and we see the chaos that's creating. We can get knowledge on it, we can get information, we can find all kinds of data points. Does it really make a difference? I mean, you know, there's enough going on in the world that you can apply that kind of thinking. Words like love, charity, a good person are often sort of like they're actually picked on to dismantle. I think it's a great tragedy when we talk about some, someone being a hero, for example. They're a hero because they, took, they were somewhere at a particular time, they saved somebody and they didn't die in the process. But if you adopt the view that a hero is by their act, after a while you realise that you're kind of like whether you're a hero or not just depends on a lot to do with circumstances, whether you act and whether you came out okay. But after that kind of normalises and things get better, You've got to do something, you've got to find more things, bigger things. You know, if we were able to, like, you know, if people were all doing this and suddenly we would run out of the heroes at that level, you'd have to have worse events to keep going. And this is the second thing I think is a really big problem. And that is, there are people who I think, I think we've got a large amount of heroes amongst us. But because we work on the basis of acts, we have to imagine that they would behave a particular way. And we may find later that they don't behave that particular way. We've seen that with lots of people. But this trust thing about not knowing other people's values is partly created because we won't discuss the value. So things that are really important, people are scared to mention in case they're laughed at. And they very often are. Veganism. You know, some of the values that have been associated with let's not, um, you know, let's be thinking about different ways of doing things, which are culturally established. But these young people are really trying to change things like that. These aren't really discussions that take place. These are that generation is so disrespectful. I actually think the COVID thing with the handshake is a really interesting feature on this. And also the fact that there's been a lot of political activity criticising you can't do that job if you've got facial covering as a racial kind of like problem. Now everyone's got them. It's kind of a, a bit of a laugh backwards that we all are doing this, actually, covering our faces to some extent. I got ID'd the other day, and I'm pretty old. I got ID'd because I had my mask on, and people couldn't <laughs> figure out what my age was. And I had sort of like the right colour. You, like, you spent the rest of the day strutting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think this is the other thing is about trust. And I trust that there are good people out there. Yes, I might discover that they're not one day. Of course, they might be, you know, we know that there are criminals out there and obviously not, you know, nice people, good people, whatever, often the person, they're just good at, you know, acting a particular way. But if someone acts too good, there's certainly research that shows that people then kick in and think this person can't be that good. I don't trust them. And if you're in an organisation and you're thinking, the organisation's a big corporation, ultimately it doesn't care about me. Somebody said something, I'm not sure whether I can just talk to that person normally about it or if I need a lawyer or I need a trade unionist or I need to start looking for jobs. So this idea of trust and understanding other people, believing in people, I mean... The moment you start talking about someone who's doing good charity work, there's an immediate attack by hypocrisy. Yeah, they do this, but yeah, this. We, so the, the fact that we don't talk means that we don't relate and find out things. We can say this guy's an idiot, or this guy's really clever. I love this guy's ideas, values. We kind of say, but where there's always much more attentiveness, and that trust thing is very, very important in business. If I think that I'm dealing with a salesman worst thing in the world because they obviously have the value they're obviously employed by someone who has the value they're part of an organization all of which has the value of profit within a system which is highly capitalist 
well, as you know, I'm a salesperson, it's not. It's often received in particular ways. We know when people turn up at the door how we behave to salesmen. We know that when they do something, and, and most salesmen I talk to, partly having been in sales and partly having worked closely in organisations with commercial relationships, actually have quite benevolent capitalist ideas. At worst, they are, I wouldn't go necessarily far enough to say they are a hero, but I don't need them to actually display a heroic action to believe that they have benevolence of character. But then we're not going to discover that. We might discover it because we find out someone's been on a march and then we say that they're a Marxist or that they, um, what you call it, something happened and we heard some rumour that they screwed somebody over, so therefore they're a bad person. But we don't actually have so much of this ability. I mean, the Agatha Christie quotation that goes something like, we learn things about other people by what they say and do and what others say about them is an interesting one because what people say to people is an immensely guarded activity. People are reluctant to use and say things that relate to values. Or if they do, as like many psychologists and counsellors will say, you ask them to talk about their emotions and they don't. They talk about justified frameworks, cognitive kind of like, you know, very well worked out things, but they're not able to go and discuss, discuss these things. Not able, I don't know if you've seen death cafes, these places where people can sit and they can talk about death because death is seen as this big existential kind of event that people can't talk about and they live in fear of these things. And we're having discussion groups where people are now starting to have those dialogues. In nursing, it's called breaking bad news, the sessions which are deliberately to try and train us to know how to say anything from like active ways of thinking and talking. So it's obviously much more considered because that's the nature of the job. But right the way across to things like, I made a mistake, there's an error that's taken place. This judicious self-disclosure or this admission of wrongness and these kind of things are uh, actually very paralyzing for the person. So I think there's three parts to it. Trust of the other person, both directions, the ability to communicate to overcome that trust and what we're left with, that is other people's comments and what we see and interpret. And this issue which relates to the fact that the communication skills are actually complex. And certainly until we start talking in these ways, we're not going to be in a situation where we've gained practice in this ways and people start to relax and say, I can talk about myself and this person's not going to be talking about me, which is the way I normally learn about the character of others and what their values are. And unlike, I mean, obviously at the moment, we've got things like challenging of whether a fact is a fact, but we've always had the question of, well, What's the motive behind what people are doing? Or do you think that's a good value as in a very, very, uh, like let's take the issue of abortion pro-life. What are the details of that? Well, a lot of the categorization never gets that far because people immediately stop talking. Well, I think there's the other side to having people talk, which is having people learn to listen. And yeah. Uh, so I meant dialogue in exchange. And that's why I, I, I understand, but I, I really want to drive home the point yeah. because I, I fundamentally worry that in management and in sales uh, and also interoperationally within their companies, listening is not a mandated skills development program because people don't listen well. And listening is where the transfer of understanding happens. And I'd be really curious to get your take on how to develop 
real understanding by improving listening skills. Yeah. Well, I have actually, I was having a discussion the other day with um, someone from Siemens, the um, German engineering firm, about how we try and present information to different people in respect of a digital twins project they're working on. A digital twins project is basically Europe has decided to set up one which basically says, let us model Europe in terms of climate system. So we'll make a, a basically a replica somewhere. Siemens are working on one for a, a, a city which they can manipulate and play with in this virtual kind of way. I think one of the things that is really important is what everybody's been talking about. People have expressed it in terms of moving from the information age to the attention age, what is going on. You know, there's so much information. And the thing we were really talking about is how do we get an understanding of what people want and need to learn, you know, to, to be aware of? And how do we get rid of some of the other stuff, which is just crowding over attention? And I think, you know, there is this danger, of course, that we manage to free up this thing and we just refill it again. But there is a lot of information that is lost in the transfer. And there's also a lot of information that just never comes up as being part of, you know, the transfer to take place. So I think in terms of listening, in terms of this kind of like idea that we um, need to listen, one of the first things that needs to happen is we need to be having the supply side sorted about out as well as the demand side. And the biggest thing, as I was saying before, about this notion of wisdom is that it's not about conveying topics, which is simply this is the mechanism by which I do this. I did a sort of a project where I pretended to be a student at one of my colleges at university, even though I was a lecturer at one of the others. So I went mystery shopping. Yeah, basically. And I went to the head of college to have a discussion with him. And we had our first discussion, which looked at me with great contempt, having turned up in my jogging um, pants and everything like that. Next time I asked him to actually come to one of his groups, which he offered to students being the good person that we all are as chief executives offering, you know, uh, jumped in this case, offering his little workshop. And he said, I don't want to meet. And I was like, why is that? And he said, I don't have time for fanciful ideas and these kind of hypothetical situations. The thing I was proposing 10 years before, I'd been doing actually making and doing and so on at the Royal College of Surgeons as an innovation manager. And literally, that was already being done that like 10 years before in other areas. But even though this was an art school, this imaginative, very, very um, prestigious art school, which is supposed to be absolutely, you know, the dream. They even have a course there called Applied Imagination, thinking mm. forward to the future to go beyond like just me, just be, like beyond strategic, like an MBA might do. But to sort of, and beyond innovation, which might go even a bit further, which is looking there, but to think about things which were from the past that people see, you know, retro things and they look at like Star Trek with walking around with the bones and stuff. And 20 years later, this is actually a real thing. So thinking, you know, across that gap to the things that people really see and move out. But this guy was not interested in having the discussion. He saw me as a student and he valued me appropriately beyond that kind of base. He wasn't even willing to have the discussion because he didn't rate me as being sort of worthy of listening to. And to some extent, I understand why that is the case. This is my little anthropology kind of, you know, ethnographic thing. But what he obviously gets people coming to him with dreams. And his first thing is to shut them down because he has to. He can't say, I've got infinite, you know, many people will be out, I've got infinite resources. 
you know, an idea in my head which requires infinite resources. You haven't got time for that. You've only got the time to do nominal listening and maybe give a point and maybe you should read this book or maybe talk to this person. I think there is a lot of need to, you know, to sort out supply side of information as well as demand side of information. Get some of this stuff out of the way. I was talking about things and stuff like about using ambient computing, which is a way of, in a sense, conveying information by colours. Like this room is hot because the wallpaper has gone this colour. Or more practically in terms of business, if you go to the London Stock Exchange, there is um, a set of balls that hang in the air and it reflects the state of the stock market rather than having to process them. If we could clear up some of that stuff and not immediately fill it with corporate, new corporate activity, or, you know, I think what was you saying, something like 94% of like nonsense kind of um, work, the kind of stuff that uh, was in um, the book. I just got the name of the person, very famous, bullshit jobs. I don't know if you. All oh, right. Um, Graeber, David Graeber, that's it. David Graeber wrote this thing about bullshit jobs. Why am I going to work? What am I actually doing here? Because this doesn't seem to have any purpose. But the value system says I must tell the people above me that I've got this thing down here. The other thing must say, you know, that if not, I could lose resources. I better spend all my resources now on anything. And in sales, I think we have very, very similar things by setting a metric and the idea that what gets measured is what gets done. How many of those metrics are value? I think we've had some discussions about it with things like relationship marketing, the ability to sort of like choose, for example, with the mobile networks where somebody said, but I can't move because I can't take my phone number with me and that's shifting over. But that relationship marketing is all very background and it probably wasn't justified by saying, but this is the right thing to do. This isn't, you know, this is the way to treat people. And I've already mentioned to you about Sandler, the way Sandler um, training works in terms of sales rather than spin selling or, you know, trying to sort of like operate anything. I found Sandler very important because it was the thing which makes you think, should we just close the book on this person? As in say, you know, this isn't a really suitable solution. It's not, you know, it might bump up our sales figures. It might make us feel better emotionally because the role identity distinction, it might make us feel better, but it's not the right thing to do. And how much pressure is there on you as a salesperson to say the right thing to do is this? Because the right thing to do is this means you will be doing it elsewhere pretty soon. If you're doing it, or I mean, it's always a survivability thing. So well, I think, yeah, listening. I think that depends on the limit culture, right. uh, of the leadership. So I, I'd like to wrap up on uh, this, sure. uh, which is that the question I'm asking at the moment is what needs to change in terms of executive culture, measurement, and compensation for any positive change in sales to sustain, and. I am coming up against a lot of resistance uh, to change because the status quo is the easy option and also the vested interest sees no reason to change. Investors see no reason to change their model. Three out of 40 companies making it to IPO or a trade sale means that they walk out with a great big wad of cash in their pocket and letting 37 die on the vine with the related human cost is okay. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, in terms of thinking, in terms of the way that organizations work and in terms of measurement, I think 
the problem with measurement is not that these things couldn't be measured and they couldn't be set down, not that we couldn't be in a situation where we say what gets measured is what gets done, but we probably don't know anything about what it is that we want to measure. When I talk to people about things, they are measuring things often in exactly the same way. Now, to some extent, that's created by things like, well, we can't let people do whatever the hell they like because we need to compare them between companies. We need to be, you know, compare them between this year's and last year's report for the, the operation of the um, stock market, for us to report financial performance to company health and things. So by automatically setting certain things like that and then forcing a standardization, which is false, I think we have a problem with measurement in that we, first of all, make certain things impossible often the things which we might want to do because they're not being measured because by definition, they are new things which we don't bother measuring, don't look into, and we don't actually get on with. If they had been established, if we decided that we did want them, we wouldn't need to um, be starting to measure them. So I don't think we know them, the ones that we really kind of want to be looking at because I don't think we know what they're looking at. We can't use the tried and trusted what gets measured is what gets done or codify them or capture them. If you look at the definitions which you find in textbooks of a lot of these values, they're things like culture is a collection of norms and um, you know, standard kinds of ways of doing things that are going on in organization. But the, the culture of the organization is a very difficult thing to kind of just wrap up with in that kind of paragraph and then pretend that the conferences or the talks are the workshops that we go to, which are about how to listen properly in a meeting how to sort of like assert ourselves are actually meaningfully tied to that all, or it becomes a tactical political thing. So I think the measurement thing is a very, very big issue. And I think something of that means we need to sort of like recommend some, recognize some of the nuances. And we're seeing a lot of the problems coming up at the moment by that inflexibility and the necessity of standardizing and fixing and say there is a common set of values that things measure against. And then just having a moment, that's not really what the value is. I don't believe in that thing anyway. I think the question in terms of the uh, compensation systems is quite a big issue. And I don't mean it just in terms of what we pick in the right compensation. I think there is a massive lack of understanding about the limited company and how limited companies are. We tend to think to ourselves that we need to lobby the chief exec and we need to lobby the board of directors. But there is the issue that actually the people who are doing the investment are the ones that the board of directors are the stewards of. They steward things to deliver on particular things for the shareholders. This is the nature of how it is. If the directors say, well, I love animals and I'd like to go off and do this and they can't, you know, I'd like to support squirrels. I found one on the street the other day. I really think that squirrels need a better chance of not ending up in sanctuaries. They can't just do that. They would have to find a very clever way of rationalizing why why squirrels in sanctuary is a good thing. Otherwise, the board of directors go, well, how does that relate to price earnings ratio or um, asset utilization? We're focusing in the wrong place. I think one of the big ways in which compensation is really about change, it's not about how much do we award. If we're thinking about it in how do we award the people who are on the board, and they award the people within the organization promotion-wise, we're missing the fact that these are the stewards. This is the baby being, and the adult is outside the thing. I think one of the big things we always talk about, or I always hear in business schools being talked about, is we need new types of company. But if we changed it so that the shareholder bases were comprised of groups 
that held values beyond that, then the stewardship of the company becomes a different thing. When you award something and say you will work harder because we're giving you shares and you've got a vested interest in that, we are forgetting that you still are like, you know, let's say 30,000 shares out of a billion shares that are held by that company. And I think before we need to go down the legal route of actually thinking to ourselves, how are we going to do this in terms of reform the company thing and put in place an asset lock as they do with CICs, is actually say, how do we get, first of all, 25% of the company and then 51% of the company, and then 76% of the company to reflect a diversity of values that we want to have stewarded by the organizations. And that compensation flows because then the board of directors get replaced when they don't hold on to those values. Yes, there's a survivability and profitability thing, but the board of directors must respond because they break the law, they break the fiduciary duty if they don't respond. I think this is a major area and I know so many people, I'm writing to the chief exec. I mean, I took out share, one share in Pets at Home the day after I saw a rabbit being treated badly in Pets at Home and decided I was going, my, my and my son went and wrote to them, the investors centre and said, I am an owner of the company and I demand that this is looked into because I understand the relationship in that way. I get, you know, I get, my, you know, I get the position that I can go to shareholders meetings and there are a lot of companies that have to put up with me asking questions at shareholders meetings. <laughs> My one vote against the auditors each time for not believing. But as I say, the auditors are delivering reports, true and fair representation of the company. Is it a true and fair representation of the company? 5%. Yeah, but I think that's the way to change the compensation system, that the company is pursuing a diversity of values because of its own. And the most obvious thing that people talk about is when um, the founders of Google were asked, take away your no evil clause. Why did they have to do it? No, they were in charge. They made the whole, they founded it, they were running it, they were doing the whole thing. They had to take it away because the venture capitalists owned a certain amount and said, we're not going to do that. You know, these kinds of things about the changing direction and the options they take, again, Open University was planning on changing things to be much more of a publishing place, but the shareholders, in, well, not shareholders, sorry, the employees were able to influence that and they changed what the performance and direction of the organisation was. I think most of this depends on who is the puppeteer. You know, the behavior of the puppet depends on the puppeteer, the actions and so on. Mm-hmm. There are changes that I don't see that the CIC, the charities, I think, have problems with their corporate structure. The real way to do it is, I believe, and it's not just to change things, but it's to make accountable those responsible and those responsible to start changing culture because there are some brilliant people at the top of the company. But if their child dies, for instance, a totally transformative event, that doesn't mean that they can then just say, all right, fine, I want to donate millions to this charity because they're the puppet, not the puppeteer. And if it doesn't get a justification, which isn't a values justification, which isn't a cognitive, a kind of logical justification, that value cannot then find its expression, the theory practice gap, in the behaviour, the actions of the company. Excellent. Jonathan, we've come to time. Thank you so much. It's been really very... Really appreciate it. It's um, been a good opportunity to think through some of these things. I'll be very interested when I get this podcast going on my own to interview about the couching model. (laughs) The the notions and the ideas behind the complexity of trust, which in a sense was the thing I was saying about that, is talking about them. Academics want to reduce it to three circles. You've added more and you've shown people how to do it, which we just talked about being one of the big problems. The values that are reflected in three item models of trust are not 
representative of the diversity of the feelings, the values. They're just a convenient circle model. Absolutely. So, yeah, I really appreciate it and look forward to understanding. Thank you. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in order to delve deeper into the topics we've talked about today? I would say that the best book that I have recommended anybody, time management didn't used to exist as a thing. Somebody invented the myth, like, it. Alan you can't manage time. You can manage your behavior. Well, time it? management is the, the idea of time management. This notion came, I think, with Yale University with this guy called Alan Lakin. So time is a resource that we can manage ourselves. And you've seen with Stephen Covey probably in Stephen Covey's books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the way they draw the grid, what's important. How do you figure out what's important? I figure out what's important by what people say of me when I'm dead. What would I like to hear at my funeral being said of me? Alan Lakin tackles this a different way. He says the Lakin quest, and this is a bit I really like. I mean, the fact that it's turned into a monetized you know, world thing, it's pretty bad, but the, Alan Lakin tackles this in a different way. He says the Lakin, well, he doesn't call it the Lakin quest, it's become known as the Lakin question. It says, what is the best use of my time I can be making right now? Which, in a sense, is the fundamental economic question of what am I doing versus what do I give up? And the way he says you do it is you think about where you want to be in your whole life, where you want to be in the next five years, a classic interview question. And if you were to be no more in nine months and basically could drop everything, had to drop everything and really decide what you do to live in the moment, what would you do with your life? And he says, reconcile these three things, the big, long frame, the five-year strategic frame, and the what would I do to live for today thing. And you will get a much better understanding of what you should be doing right now, which is the time we control in that sense. And that's I think Alan Lakin. Alan Lakin, L-A-K-I-N. He then produced a second book, which was never as popular, and it was called Moment Management, which didn't catch on. But Moment Management, I don't think it was a brilliant implementation of it, but Moment Management was about discovering certain values, like what is a plus in your life? What is a scent or a smell or an experience of your life? And he talked about you manage your moments aren't like seconds, minutes and stuff, but they are about getting the value out of the moment. And therefore, how do we sort of enrich moments? And I think, although the implementation of it was tragically bad moment management, there is a principle in that which is really important about how do we address quality issues in our life that relate to our own value system. The first book I've recommended to many students, and they said they've had existential moments where they've reconsidered whether they wanted to continue their career in medicine or they've left university shortly after. I'm sure I'm not popular for this. <laughs> university but like richly reconsidered, why am I here for this subject when I could be doing this? So in terms of personal things, I think they're very good. There's a, a piece by, it's called principles by um, Ray Dalio, the um, investor, which is um, now in a series, a video series. I think he's actually very, very good. And the reason I'm saying this is because I I think people need to give real time, but the time is a bit like we're saying about academics. We don't need academics to come in and give us advice on how to do this. The values and including the values about how we choose our values and our thinking and stuff come from that. I, if my life was to end in nine months, I'd probably grab my son and rush away, take him away from his evil mother. <laughs> you know, I would want to spend time. But if I decide to do that with my time right now and I don't die in nine months, then I've got some problems because those problems are going to be that I will probably be in prison in five years' time for doing it. <laughs> so this reconciliation of the timeframes of your life, 
which aren't like, how do I work this? I mean, the interview question is what, you know, and the other one is that, but you have actually the steps to move places. And I don't think these are incomprehensible things. When Dalio says, maybe you are ugly, and maybe it would be better if you recognise that that's not your thing and you actually didn't deny this and you were able to kind of recognise that you have other things which are relevant and that you can work and be interconnected and do things. I think Stephen Covey's Seven Habits is a brilliant book. But that, this would be on the sort of individuals. The, the levels, if you were going to look at um, some of the um, bigger things in terms of philosophy, it's probably, I mean, it's such a massive area, I would probably give sort of like... Um, probably be easy if they contacted me. I'd give you my details and I'd be happy to direct people. There are obviously books out there, but Excellent. I think really if you wanted to, it might be better to start with recognising this thing about aesthetics isn't art. Aesthetics is the opposite of anaesthetic, the absence of experience versus the experience and the world that you live in. And I think through that, you can discover a lot more about your ethics and a lot more about your place. And in a sense, that's all that all Alan Lakin is doing with those two books and Dalio is doing with his. Dalio is a little closer to workplace thing. Alan Lakin, you know, I don't think, believe that it would turn into time management of a everywhere thing, which is largely about what? What is it large? What is time management? It's about not really what you do. It's about how you can, you know, put things into a um, certain amount of like, you know, you can, what's it called, chunk time together so you can be more efficient, get rid of distraction. Think about, you know, producing a plan for the week. I mean, there couldn't be anything more tedious other than being an intern at a big firm than doing time management as it's defined and meaningless. Those are the ones I'd recommend, but I'm happy to recommend more academic. Excellent. Um, Okay. How can people get hold of you? They can reach me at, well, I'll, I'll give you the details in terms, so you've got the email, right? It's just jonathan.jewel. You can put it down for ccstudio.dev, or it can be Open University, which is jonathan.jewel at open.ac.uk, or get me on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest place where I'm normally Excellent. challenging people's views of what is valuable rather than what they're doing and whether or not they should be doing that thing at all. So, yeah, LinkedIn's okay. a very good in 30 seconds or less, if you could give your 23-year-old idiot self some advice, what choice bit of advice would you give him? I would say that I think the real thing is actually acknowledging that your values are your values. That is the value, so to speak. When I was 23, I was interested in figuring out ways to do political manoeuvres to get things done. I was very much focused on how do I move through. It was important because obviously I wanted to do things, not just think about them. But I never considered my values that important. I always saw that society gave me my values, that this was a value. And I made the presumption that that value had to be the way. And I think it affected my relationships with people because I felt, well, I have to say this and I have to be this way. I can't. So, yeah, I think it would be to recognise the legitimacy of my values. Not that they're always static, not that they'll always be that way. Obviously, you learn like you learn experience, but that you're not just playing somebody else's game by their rules and for their goal. That would be what I would say. Excellent. Jonathan Jewell, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found the conversation stimulating, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, go on to Apple Podcasts, scroll below the fold, 
and leave an honest review. One star, three stars, five stars, or somewhere in between, just leave a review. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million turnover mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. You can contact me either via email, marcus at laughsiphonlast.com, or via direct message on LinkedIn. We've recently launched a community called Sales A Force For Good, and our mission is to remind us that we exist because of, not in spite of, the customer. Our role is to serve and help them achieve their outcomes. And what we're trying to do within the community is raise the selling profession and ultimately to make sales an aspirational career choice. If you feel that this is something you'd like to get involved in, check out the hashtag hash pro customer and there will be content on there. You can find out a little bit more uh, about the movement and also get involved. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.